listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If, if you have a Bible or an app or something, we're going to be in Matthew 9 and 10. We're flipping a, flipping a chapter in double digits now, folks. It's a miracle. It's only taken us 23 weeks. Uh, So Matthew 9, we're going to finish the end of the chapter, and we're going to kind of creep into chapter 10 this morning. If you're a guest, what we've been doing is working through the gospel of Matthew, uh, and we started back in December. Yes, December, and we're in chapter 10. Okay. Um, There's there's certain periods in in raising children, as you know this, that are just game changers, right? Where your children go from being learners to doers, and it makes huge differences, right? And so maybe one of the first ones is when that child is able to go to the bathroom on their own. No more diapers. Potty training is complete. That's a game changer, folks. That is a game changer. Uh, not only financially, but just your life gets exponentially better that you don't have to change diapers anymore. Or when, you're, when your kids can finally dress themselves, right? And some of you are like, my kid's 20 and he still can't dress himself. I'm not talking about his choice of style. I'm talking about the ability to put a shirt on and shoes that match. It's a game changer, right? Or here's a big one for some of us. When your child can finally drive, praise God, you are not Uber mom anymore. All right. Got a birthday party, got school, got practice, got this. I need to go to the mall. It's nine o'clock. I have a project tomorrow. Please go to CVS and get me poster board. No, you go right? You drive to CVS. Here's $1.99. Get your own poster board. That's a game changer, right? When you go from being a learner to a doer, even in in the the business world or your job, some of you were an intern and you were learning and then you got tasks, you got the job. Now you're doing, you went to school for X. I remember when I was student teaching, I was practicing, you know, I was PE teacher, major. So practicing, teaching this and practicing, teaching this. And then they throw you into the schools and you're like, why did I choose this major? but you're doing the thing you've been taught, right? It's a game changer. It's, it's a huge point. And what we're gonna see this morning is Jesus is gonna take a bunch of guys who are learners. They're called disciples. Mathetes means follower or learner. It's the Greek word. And he's gonna take disciples and he's gonna make them apostles. They went from learning, now they're sent. Apostle is just one who is sent, a messenger. It's a big deal for them. And it's a big deal for us because even though we're not apostles in the sense that they were, we're in this story and there's a point to Jesus taking these 12 who have been learning and they've been soaking it all in, right? They've been processing, they've been learning, they've been watching, they've been seeing Jesus do all these things. And now it comes to a point where he says, now you're getting sent. And that, and we play into that uh, in a way that I'm going to show you this morning. And, and what we're going to look more so next week, we're going to see the being sent next week. We're going to see the action of being sent and what Jesus is going to teach us about us being sent. But what I want to look at today is two things, two simple questions. I want to see the why behind it and I want to see the who. Why is Jesus sending and who is he sending? What, what, what is he looking for in those being sent? And so that's where we're going to go today. Matthew 9, verses 35 through 14, I mean, through 10, 4. Uh, and this is what we call a hinge passage. It's a transitional passage, right? It's in introducing a new idea. There's no, and I, I said we're in chapter 9, verse 34. Remember, the original language is there's no chapter divisions. There's no, okay, Matthew's like, okay, this seems like a good place to put verse 33. It's not how it was. But this is a natural break into a new idea. 
And what we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew is he starts with Jesus' origin story, showing that he's the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Then it shows how he identifies with the nation Israel. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days like they did 40 years. He goes through the water like they came through the water. Then it's his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Then he has spent, we spent weeks looking at these miracles that validate and authenticate who he is and what he's saying. And now he's saying, okay, now I've got these guys, I'm gonna send them. So it's a new section of the scripture that we're looking at today. And let me read it to us and then we'll kind of come back and unpack it a little bit and look at the why and the who Jesus is sending. So we start in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles, notice the word apostles now, are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So he starts, Matthew, saying uh, that Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching, proclaiming the gospel, healing. This is a summary verse. We saw this verse almost identical in chapter four, which is, if the Bible repeats itself, it's significant. It's, It's highlighting, this is what he's doing. He's teaching. This is what he's doing. He's healing. This is what he's doing. He's proclaiming the good news. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. That is what he is doing. And in verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion, right? And this is the heart of the savior. And I want to dig in a little bit here because let's be honest. How many of us, when we see the crowds, we're like, yay, a crowd, right? Yay, I love crowds. I love busyness. I love parking a mile away and getting to church. Some of you grew up in churches where they had pews and there was a rule. In pews, you do not sit next to other people. It's my pew. There's like an invisible, nobody else sit here. And so you are very uncomfortable in this church because we have chairs which force you to sit next to people, which drives you mad, right? Let's be honest. Because crowds are annoying. And the disciples saw the crowds often as an annoyance. Like Jesus, send them home. It's time for them to go. I don't like people. We're in the ministry, but we really don't like them. We're just doing this, right? Because it's annoying. And remember, the Lord Jesus, although he is the son of God, he has taken humanity on. He is fully human, fully God. And so the limitations of humanity are on him. He gets tired, just like you get tired. He needs to eat, just like you need to eat. He gets weary, just like you get weary, But in his weariness of teaching, and people always think about it, they always want something from the Lord Jesus, don't they? Everywhere he goes, it's gimme, 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 right? It's Abba, gimme, gimme, gimme. Not a man after midnight, but gimme something, right? They're always wanting. It's It's like a mom. If you're a mom, you know this. Kids need you. Husband needs you. Mother in law needs you. The dog needs you. The carpool needs you. You're always like, I can't get a moment. And when Jesus, in the middle of teaching and tiredness and weariness, he still sees the people, the crowds, and it says he has compassion. Compassion. What is that about? 
I think it's important for us to grasp that because this is the why behind his sending because he sees him and he has compassion. And, and it's important for us because let's be honest, do you think, honestly, do you think it's that God wants his church, since he has compassion, is his church responsible to have compassion? Yes or no? Yeah, first service had like three people, this one has none. Yes, the answer is yes, that we are to have compassion. And, and I think the text, there's at least three things behind what compassion is with the Lord Jesus, okay? Number one, compassion for Jesus means he assumes and sees that there is a need, right? It says he had compassion because they're harassed and helpless, because there's brokenness, because they're beat down. Some translations say they're troubled. Some say they're vexed. I don't know what vexed is, but it just sounds bad, right? They're vexed. There's heaviness, and he sees it. Life is hard. He sees it in their faces, and the fact that they're just needy. He, see, he sees it. He says there's sheep without a shepherd. Philip Keller, in his book on the 23rd Psalm, he, he teaches the 23rd Psalm in this book from a shepherd's perspective. He talks about sheep that are cast down. And a cast down sheep means that their legs are up in the air. And they're just like, they can't do anything. They can't roll over. And if they stay in that cast down position, they die because they either get eaten or they just die because they're helpless, helpless. And so they need the shepherd to come and turn the sheep over. And what Jesus, it's, I think, idea here is he sees out on the crowd and he sees everyone's got their legs up. The apostle Paul says that we're hopeless without God in this world. And it doesn't matter if you think you are or you're not. Some of you, you come in and you're like, oh, I'm great, job's great, work's great, family great, 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 great. Everything's great, right? Because we have this Instagram edited, filtered life that we want everyone to project and Jesus sees right through it and he sees, no, no, they're broken. They're needy. And he has compassion, he's moved, he sees. And I just, just wanna stop for a moment and, and encourage some of you who come in this morning and you, you, know, you got the makeup on and you dressed up and you got your shirt even tucked in, but you're broken. And your legs are up and you know it even though you're pretending it's not. And you're empty and you're vexed, and you need to know that Jesus sees, and he knows, even if no one else does, that he sees. But he doesn't just see, he feels. There's an idea there but in this word, great Greek word, splagchiznomai is the word for compassion. It means from the guts, right? For them, the emotions wasn't, you know, we say, oh, my heart is, my heart feels this, my heart's broken. For them, it was not the heart, it was the guts. And we get this a little bit. If I said, okay, you over there, I want you to come up stage for a second and give us a 60 second summary of the Trinity. Come on, you got this. And most of you would be like, oh my goodness, I can't do it all. You know, right? Because apparently uh, the, fe- the biggest fear that people have is of public speaking. It's not death, that's number two. Public speaking is more scary than dying, apparently, okay? So you would be all nervous and your butterflies in your stomach. Oh my goodness, I'm so nervous. I can't speak to these people about something that I really know about. Right, and that's the idea. He feels it. He assumes and sees the need, but he doesn't just see it. It moves him. It moves him in his guts. And, and here's, here's the encouragement and the fear for us. We are so inundated with tragedy, with cable news and internet and everything else that 
you know, there's a war going on in Ukraine and it's not even a number one story anymore. Why? Because Twitter was just bought by Elon Musk and Disney lost its tax breaks. I, because it, we're so inundated with tragedy and horror and there's another shooting down in MLK. Well, you know, and there's, there's this suicide over there in this high school. Well, you know, it's sad. Oh, and this person's caught up in addiction and this family's struggling with this and this husband left his wife and it's just, uh, you know, just another tragedy. And even worse, it's, well, they made, they made their bed, time to sleep in it. They made their choices, right? And thankfully, the Savior doesn't see you in, in your anxiety and in your depression and your struggling and your lost job and you're struggling with your children, you're struggling in marriage. And he doesn't say, eh, they made their choices. He's moved. Which means the church should be moved, shouldn't we? He sees it and assumes the need. He, he, he feels it and then he does something. This is the third aspect. He, he moves. He's got a plan. Because he has compassion, because people are lost, because people have no shepherd, because there's brokenness, he has got a plan and his plan is what? To send these guys out, to take them from learning to sent ones, right? That's the plan, right? And, and, and the challenge he says, the harvest is plentiful. He says to his disciples, hey, the harvest is ginormous, right? But there's so few people to work. Can't get anybody to work. It's like, it's like our culture right now. Can't get anybody to work. I got this huge harvest, but there's nobody to work the harvest. I was driving to a baseball game last week, or two weeks ago, through Vidalia, Vidalia, Georgia, known for onions. And we were driving on this little country road and I looked to the left and right and it was just fields. I mean, like this one field that we came through, I mean, it must've been a mile long and, you know, 500 yards that way. And it was just full of onions. I mean, just onions, 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 onions everywhere. And I was amazed because I'd never seen an onion field full. I've seen them before, but not when they were ripe. And I thought, Man, if you put one dude in that field and his job was to start harvesting those onions, it would take him, he could never do it. He couldn't make a dent in it, right? So much. And that's the imagery that Jesus is saying. It's full. I just can't get anybody to get out in the field and harvest it. I can't get anybody. And, and this is common language for Jesus. There's a great scene in John chapter four, I think it is, when Jesus is with this, this woman at a well, and he kind of talks, talking to her and he finds, he tells her, hey, I know, I know you've been married six times and you're shacking up with a guy now that he ain't your husband. And she's like blown away. She's like, oh my goodness, this guy knows my whole life. She goes back to her Samaritan village and she tells everyone, you guys need to see this guy who told me everything about my life. And while she's bringing people back out to the well, all this, the people in the town, Jesus is interacting with the disciples and they're like, hey, why were you talking to that lady? That's kind of strange. And you need to eat something. And they're just having this back and forth. And Jesus at one point, when you can just picture the image here, the, the, the Samaritans are starting to come towards the well because of this woman. And Jesus says, y'all, look up. Look at the harvest. It's ripe. And he look out and who's coming? These rejected, needy Samaritans. And the point is, both Matthew and John, the harvest is there. The fields are full. The need is great. It's all rooted in his compassion and he wants folks to be harvesters in the spiritual harvest, right? And so he says this, this is his application. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, 
because the harvest is great, because there's so few labors, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest. He says the application is pray. Now, what you don't get out of Matthew, but you do get out of Luke, is that Jesus has done this very thing the night before. Jesus, before he appoints these men as apostles, spends the entire night praying for the apostles, in essence, saying, Lord, send somebody out, and he's gonna send these 12. And now he's telling them to do the very thing he's done. Now that you are going, pray that more laborers would come. He's doing good math here, multiplication, because one guy can only do so much. Remember, Jesus, even though he's the son of God, is still limited to be in one place at a time. So now I'm gonna have 12 guys going out, and those 12 are going to get 12 more and 12 more and 12 more. And that multiplication is going to kind of impact everything. He says, you guys pray for more workers. Pray that more would go out. Not that you could you know, pray for supervisors to, to oversee. Pray for workers. And Jesus is doing the, telling them to do the very thing he's done. Why? Again, because of his compassion. Because his desire for people to reach, and I, and I love the language here, the metaphor of this Lord of the harvest. Pray for the Lord of the harvest. And he's not talking about harvest of wheat and harvest of grain. He's talking about the spiritual harvest. And notice the personal pronoun. It is his harvest. It's his. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that his harvest would have workers. And this is just a reminder. You, really, ultimately, I can convince no one in this room of anything. I can unpack the Trinity, I can unpack the gospel, I can unpack the Bible, I can do all these things, but I have no power in myself to change one iota. Only the Lord of the harvest can change the heart. Doesn't mean we don't play a part. Even the apostle Paul says, I planted, Apollos, he came along and he he watered, but the Lord gives growth because he is the Lord of the harvest. He is sovereign over salvation. He's the one who draws all men to himself. And so we pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send people into the harvest and that people would have eyes to see and ears to hear the good news, the hope of the gospel. He said, and say, he says, ask for what? Laborers. I love that. He doesn't say, ask for better pastors. Pray for great theologians, great experts in, in the Bible. Now, I just need some folks to show up and to get in, into the dirt. That's what I need. You don't, it doesn't take much to be a laborer, right? What's my job today? You see that section right there? Go take care of that section right there. Just get all them onions, put them in that basket. That's your job. You don't have to have a PhD in Trinitarianism to do that. All you gotta be able to do is be willing to get on your knees and go, boop, I got that one. That's all, just show up. It says, pray for laborers, not supervisors, laborers that are saying, I'll go and I'm gonna bring some people with me. And this, this, y'all, is where we fit in the story, okay? I wanna see how this ties together. Jesus has compassion, so he sends people out, right? And he's going to send these 12 disciples now, apostles, and these 12 men are gonna be the foundation of the church, They're going to be the foundation. This is what Paul says. He says, you are no longer aliens and strangers. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. And you were built on what? The foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. So Jesus' plan, because of his compassion, because of his love, I'm gonna take you 12 and you 12 are gonna build my church. 
And so what, you read the book of Acts. What do these guys do? They taught what Jesus taught them. Everything that he taught them, they taught everybody else. Teaching, teaching, teaching. What's the early church doing? Acts 2.42. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And these men eventually write the New Testament under the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Either apostle did or someone that's closely associated. Mark's gospel, Peter. Right? These people are close to an apostle and they write down God's truth for God's people, building the church. That's the plan, right? That is the plan. And he gives these 12 men, verse one says, he called his 12 disciples and he gave them his authority. He gives authority to cast out demons. He gives them authority to heal every disease. Can you imagine? They've been seeing Jesus do some crazy stuff and I was like, no, you go do it. I've given you authority. And so the first time Peter's like, I'm gonna try this. Blind dude, see, guy sees and you're like, did you see that? Did you see that? Can you imagine that? And that's, th- this is very important to understand because this is not a normative experience. I've never cast out a demon. I've never healed somebody with my hands. I've never laid hands on a paralytic and they stood up. It's very unique for the apostles. The early church had the office of apostle, the sent ones. They had to have seen the risen Christ and they had to perform miracles and signs to prove their apostleship. And it was very foundational in the early church because they didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have the teaching yet. And so when you show up in a city in Malta or Corinth or Rome, and you're like, yeah, this Jewish guy was crucified and rose again, how do we know to believe you? Oh, here's why, because this dead guy just got risen from the dead. I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul raises a guy from the dead who falls asleep in the middle of his sermon. Guy sitting in the balcony, all right? Now, if you're hopeful, if you fall asleep and you over the top balcony people, your only hope is memorial because I ain't got nothing for you. I will take you to memorial and we'll pray for you, but I can't raise you from the dead. This is very foundational for these guys, which is why the normative experience is not that we still see, you know, people coming back from the dead and blind people seeing. No, no, does God still heal? He absolutely does, but not in the way that he did here. We pray, we pray for healing and God sometimes chooses to heal, but not like these guys. Paralytic, get up and walk, go. Blind guy, see. Leper, healed. So it's very unique to these guys that God gives these 12 men authority, his authority, to build the foundation of the church. And again, here's a side note for some of you kind of theologic nerds. This, this kind of shows my cards eschatologically. But why 12? Well, 12 has significance to Israel, right? 12 tribes, 12 loaves of bread in the tabernacle, all sorts of 12s, right? Jesus is in the tabernacle, t- temple on a 12th birthday, all sorts of 12s. One of the big reasons I think that there's 12, because in the kingdom, there's gonna be 12 thrones. And who's sitting on those 12 thrones? The 12 apostles. In fact, that's what Jesus says. He says, in the new world, when the son of man will sit in his glorious throne, this is in the kingdom, you will have follow me, will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Because there's some that say there's no future for national Israel. Israel is done, we're, you know, I would disagree. And I think the apostles would disagree because they're like, if there's no future Israel, then who's, I'm sitting on a throne and there's nobody out there. He says, no, you're gonna sit on 12 thrones. You got Judah, you got Zebulun, you got Issachar, you got Dan, you got so-and-so, right? So I think it's significant that Israel has a play. Again, this has nothing to do with the text. This is for you theological nerds out there, okay? But the point is this, the big picture. God's compassion and his heart has him send foundational men, apostles. They build the church. And now that they're gone, what's the plan? The plan, CBC, is you. You're not JV. You're not middle school team. You're plan A. 
you, the church of Jesus Christ, indwelt and filled by the Holy Spirit of God, are plan A. And this is what Paul says later in, in Ephesians, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You now are a plan. See, again, big picture. Jesus, 12. 12 to the church. The church to the world. You're to go into the harvest. Just laborers. That's, that is the plan. That you are supposed to be the compassion and the empathy and the heart and the hands and the feet of Jesus himself. He is, you've been a learner. And you're like, oh, I don't know that much. We'll get to that in a minute. But you're, you've been a learner. Time to get on the adventure and be a sent one. Doesn't mean you're still not learning, but it's time to get in the game, Maverick, right? It's time. That's his point. Because the need is huge. And quite honestly, this, we do not need folks filling up seats that just wanna fill up seats and fill up notebooks. That's, that's not, we don't learn just to learn. That was very interesting. That Greek word, I'm gonna write that down because I'm gonna use that in a sentence this week. It's not the point. Point is, God's compassionate. So what are you gonna do about it? How are you gonna start seeing your neighbors, that annoying lady at work, your boss who, ooh, yeah, him, that teacher who failed me last semester. That's the point, right? And so it, I think it's easy for us to say, yeah, but I'm just, I'm a newbie. Been in the church a month where I'm not really, really that great at anything, right? I mean, my fantasy team's doing well, but that's about all I got. And I think it's easy for us to glamorize these dudes and say, yeah, that was Peter. That was Paul. That was Matthew, right? Because uh, I think we have, the, we, we treat how God sends people. This is the who piece. We think God sends, like we treat how God sends people like the NFL draft. Anybody watch the NFL draft this week? I watched the NFL draft. Okay, I, I did, I did. Uh, and we think that God looks at like the stat sheet, like Mel Kuyper's like, okay, well, this guy's got a 93. He's got, runs the 40 and this fast and he benches 225 this and this is how he scored on the Wonderlick, whatever that is. I don't even know what that is. Uh, it sounds like a dog bone, doesn't it? The Wonderlick, right? But uh, this is, God's looking for the fastest, strongest, benches the most, six foot six, 330 guy and that's the one he sends. When you look at Jesus's draft, he gets an F. Mel Kuyper would be like, this is an F, dude. You missed it. And praise God that he gets an F on the draft. Because how many of us would be drafted? God ain't looking for five, six dudes who are PE majors, I can tell you. He ain't. If, if, if his draft is based on the world standards. But what I want you to do, I just want to walk through this list real quick. Because some of these names are familiar, some are not. I want you to see yourself in the list so that you can be encouraged that God has a place for you in the harvest. If he can build the church around the cornerstone of Jesus on these dudes, there's nothing he can't do. Because this, y'all, is a bunch of rejects. That's what this is. This is a bunch of commoners from Galilee. And I wanna I want walk through it. Here's the list, okay? Here's the name of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter. Uh, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And some, some kind of common things about this, if you kind of group these together, kind of found this graph this week, one of my professors in seminary, there are four lists of the apostles in the New Testament, 
Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the, the book of Acts, except Acts leaves out Judas because he's, he's dead at this point, right? And you see some similarities. Simon Peter's always first. Judas, always last, because by the time they wrote it, they knew that he was the traitor, right? Uh, but you see, there's actually, it seems to be three groups of four men kind of grouped together commonly, right? So you have, and I highlighted it in this slide so you could see it. So you always have Peter first, and he seems to have three guys with him. James, John, the two brothers, and his brother, Andrew. And then you have a second group, Philip. Philip seems to be the head of this group. He's got Bart, Thomas, and Matty on his team, right? And then the last guy is James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, you have Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, or Canaanite, uh, Canaanian, and Judas. And so they're organized in this way. And I don't know if they were sent in this way. Sometimes they're sent in twos. But that, that's how they're organized uh, as you see them. And we always start with old Petros, old Simon Peter, and, and as I was studying this week and just kind of looking at names and reading a bunch of stuff, I, I, something that I learned that uh, I didn't know before, you know what the name Simon, uh, Simeon, you know, in, in the Hebrew means? It means one who listens, which I find very ironic because Peter is the worst listener in the world. Peter is a man who is known for what? Saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. How many times in the gospels? Right? Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Not going to happen. Get behind me, Satan. He's fish. One day he's, he's finished his job for the night. They're done fishing. Jesus says, Peter, go back out and fish. Not going to happen. Fished all night, Lord Jesus. And then he's like, oh, all right, I'll do it. He's, he's foot and mouth guy. Always speaking first. He's a man of action. He's at the transfiguration, him and James and John in the inner circle. And you got Elijah's there and Moses is there and Jesus is there and he's in his glorified body. And Peter's like, somebody's got to say something here. This is good. Maybe I should make some tents for you guys. And Jesus is, and God the Father says, hush, don't say anything. He's the one when Jesus says, you're going to betray me tonight that you even knew me. He's like, I'll never do that. Never. I will die for you. I'm a man of action. I cut ears off with one swoop. I move first. Any of you here struggle with foot and mouth disease? Constantly saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Feeling like you have to say something. Feeling like you have to have your opinion heard. You're action driven. Think second, act first. Gets you in trouble all the time. Maybe you said, oh, never do that. And then you go and do it. Peter's you and you're Peter. And, and what God does with a guy like Peter, he takes that raw material, raw gifts, raw abilities, even his ability to speak, and he shapes it and molds it into something, the leader of the men who are gonna be the foundation of the church. And this is a guy who denied that he even knew Jesus with Jesus just a stone's throw away. I mean, Jesus is right over there and Peter is being asked as he probably can see him. Do you know that guy? I don't know him. Are you kidding me? And if you're like, I have a great failure, I've done this. You just need to look at Peter and say, if God can use Peter, then I can go into the fields too. And there's his brother, Andrew. Here's what's interesting to me about Andrew. His, his name means manliness, which is awesome, isn't it? You can walk, he probably walks around, I am Andrew. Hear me roar, manliness, right? But here's about Mr. Manly, okay? Uh, you don't know much about him because he's just kind of in the background. And, and it's interesting to me that James and John, they get to be in the inner circle and Peter gets to be in the inner circle. Why not Peter's brother? He's not in that inner circle. 
Right? He's not in the, in the in community group inside the disciples. He's on the out. It's, he's probably not, you don't see him speaking a lot. You don't see him preaching these great sermons. He's kind of a backroom guy. But you do see this. This is what you see consistently about Andrew. Andrew knows how to bring one person to Jesus very well. In fact, who brings Peter to the Lord Jesus? Andrew, his brother. There's a scene when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and Andrew is the one who brings the little boy up. It says, hey, this guy's got some loaves. This guy's got some fish. There's another scene later in John where there's two Greeks that wanna see Jesus and he's like, I can take you to Jesus. See, Andrew's really good at the one-on-one. He may not be the crowd pleaser. He may not be the great order, but he's really good with one person in a room saying, hey, can I pray for you? Can I do anything for you? Can I meet this need? Can I take you to the Savior? And we think, oh, we need Peters. We need big orders. We need to, no, no. This guy's foundational to the church and he's a backroom guy. He's a one-on-one guy, one-on-one discipleship with someone at six in the morning at the Starbucks praying with this lady over here. The church is built on people like that. And we need those people in the harvest. Some of you, that's you. You never get on the stage. You won't even walk halfway up this place because you're scared that I might ask you to do something, which I wouldn't. But you're great in a room with somebody. You're great in a hospital room. You're great in serving. And that is huge. That's part of the harvest. That's part of the empathy and the compassion of God. And you got the two brothers, sons of thunder, wearing their leather jackets with their tattoos. And they're called the sons of thunder. Why? Because there's a city in Samaria that won't accept Jesus and won't kind of listen to him. And so they're like, God, let us call down a nuclear bomb on that city and blow them out as we preach love and the gospel to these other cities, right? That's, that's what they want to do. They're like, oh, we want to be like Elijah, call down fire and destroy these people. And that, that's them. And so they're called the sons of thunder. And they're super driven and they're super ambitious and they have all this desire to be great. In fact, at one point they asked their mama to go to Jesus and say, Hey, can my sons sit on your right and left in the kingdom? You need somebody good on your right and your left. And Jesus looks over, I'm like, really? You send your mama to ask me this? Come on, boys. All right? And it caused great division amongst the apostles. But they have ambition. And they want to be, they want to be up front. And they want to move and they want to judge. They want to do all these things. They're hotheads. Jesus asks them both, can you, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They're like, yes, we can. We can do it all. We're the sons of thunder. Here's the thing, God takes his spirit, he puts it in in these two guys and they do drink the cup that that Jesus drank. James was the first martyr of the church. James, the book of James is not written by James, this James. James is long gone. The the guy who wrote the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus, right? There's a different James. He's the first one to die for the gospel in the book of Acts. He learns that glory comes through suffering. And his brother is the one who wrote the gospel of John, he also calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is ironic because he's saying it about himself. That's another issue I have. But it's true. He writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He writes the book of Revelation. He gets uh, put on an island where he is isolated, where he is uh, put out basically to die. But he learns truth and love and the balance there. Because you read the gospel, I mean, you read 1st John, read it. We've, we studied it last year. It's all love this, love this, love this, love this. Here's a guy who wants to nuke people. God has changed him, so now he's all about love, love, love. That's what God does. And so if you're the ambitious, angry sometimes, want to judge this person, God can use you in that passion that you have, and he can turn it to build you into someone who's encouraging love, and they can learn suffering uh, and glory. That's the brothers. And you got Philip. 
Philip's the bean counter. He works in accounting and HR, right? Philip's the guy when uh, Jesus knows what he's gonna do, he's gonna feed the 5,000. So how are we gonna feed these people? And Philip's like, well, I was thinking about that, Lord, and uh, it doesn't add up. We don't have the money. I talked to Judas Iscariot. We have about $50 in the account. It's gonna take 200 denarii to feed all these people. We don't have 200 denarii, so there's no church pot luck today, Jesus. That's Philip. When the two Greeks come that want to see Jesus that I told you earlier, Andrew brings, they, they come to Philip first, and he's like, well, I don't know. I don't know what to do about this. Uh, it's not in the manual. I don't know if I can bring you to Jesus. I have to, let me go talk to Andrew. And Andrew's like, yeah, come on. Hey, he's, he's the by the book, I don't know, but God can do that guy. That's Philip, right? And some of you, that's you. you go, I don't know. That sounds pretty ambitious. God could do that, I, don't, I guess. Right? And you, you see the limitations of what is real and what's, oh, I don't know. And hey, that's a lot of us. We're not half glass full, half glass empty. We're just half glass. This is how it is, right? And yet God uses Philip. This is Philip. He's one of the 12. He's one of the ones that it's foundational. He's the one that tradition says he went into Asia Minor and he preached the gospel until he was killed. Right? And, and some of you, you see things very realistic. You see things with human tendencies and you need to know that God uses those kind of people. And he wants to increase your faith and he wants to build you, but he uses people like that. Even though you're like, oh, this is not in the HR manual. Bartholomew or Nathaniel as he's known. Here's the guy. You're familiar with the story when Philip comes and says, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. He's like, are you kidding me? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's got some uh, partiality issues. He has some racial tendencies. He he looks down on people for where they're from. You didn't go to college. I went to college. Or you went to that college. Or you're from this side of the tracks. Or look at your family history. That's him. He's got racist, racist tendencies. He looks down on people from what their outside appearance looks like. That's just him. He's also, Jesus says, oh, an Israelite with whom there is no guile. He knows his Old Testament. And when Jesus says, I saw you before he came to get you under the fig tree, he realizes this is a Messiah because he knows his Bible enough. And he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So, he, so he's a student of the word. He's still got some partiality issues. But he's, he's some of you. You grew up in families, you look down on people because they went to that school and you went to this school. Some of you still struggle with that. Let's be honest. We like to say, oh, I don't have any. I'm not partial. I don't have, yeah, you do. You look down on people for mistakes they've made. You look down on people from where they come from sometimes. You won't associate with people because of the way they look sometimes, right? And you need to know that God can get you through that and he can use you just like he uses Philip. You got Thomas. We all know Doubting Thomas, his issue, right? The guy that, that, I, unless I see his hand and I put my fingers in Jesus' side and his hands and his feet, then I will believe. Until then, I will not believe. So he's got some doubting issues. He's also kind of a dark soul. There's another passage, John 11, when Lazarus has died and Jesus says, Lazarus is dead and we will go and see him. And, and Lazarus, I mean, and, and, and Thomas, he's just like, he's like, let us all go and die with him. It's like, dude, lighten up. I mean, come on, dude. I mean, let's... Chill out. Don't be such a negative Debbie Downer guy. And some of you, that's you. You're not, again, you're not half glass full. You're not half, you are half glass empty. You see everything through, it's miserable. And you have, you have faith issues sometimes. You question things. I don't know if I can believe that. Unless I see God move, I don't know. Right? I don't know if God really cares because if he did, look at all these things in my life. And you have questions and you need to know, God used Thomas. He built a church on Thomas. Thomas ends up taking the gospel to the nation of India, modern day India, 
to one of the most populated areas in the entire world. And if today, if you went into India, you would still see the impact that Thomas the doubter, Thomas the dark soul, let's go die with him too, that he had. He was run through his spears in India because of the gospel. And that's some of you, right? And you got Matthew, the tax collector. He puts it in there. Matthew, the guy with a past. Some of you, we've talked about this before. You got a past. And God uses, how many people does God use with a past? Rahab the harlot, right? That's how she's always referred to. Yet she's in the messianic line. Matthew, the tax collector, he writes the first gospel. And, and, and the encouragement is, don't, don't let your past keep you from the field. Maybe your past is the field you need to be in. You're a divorcee, so you need to go and minister to that person that's going through a divorce at work. Maybe you're a single mom, and so you need to, to encourage that person who's a single mom. Maybe you failed with addiction and these things in the past, and you need to go into that world because you have learned, 2 Corinthians 1, you're suffering and you've learned from your suffering, so you can go now be a minister of truth. Maybe that's you, right? I, I don't know. But don't let your past keep you from the field. I, I'm not worthy to get in the field. We're not looking for your worthiness. We're looking for your readiness. None of us are worthy. You're not on the draft board. You're not number one, right? That's Matthew. I got a couple other names. Here's one, Simon the Zealot, right? And, and uh, the Zealot is not, he's real zealous, this is a political party of its day. The Zealots were basically the original Wolverines, the Red Dawn Wolverines, right? They wanted to overthrow Rome and say where they're hit and run with their guerrilla warfare tactics. They would take out things because they hated Rome and they wanted the Messiah to come and conquer Rome. They saw giving taxes to Rome as treasonous to God, which makes an interesting conversation between him and Matthew in the same room, right? I mean, this is what God does. He brings Zealot and tax collector in the same room. But that's, that's him. He's passionate about politics. I'm not even going to talk about how many of, I know, of you I know are passionate about politics in this room. And there's nothing wrong with politics. But there is something wrong with you think that a new president or a new Congress or even a Supreme Court is going to fix the issue of sin in the world. It won't. It won't. I mean, it can punish evildoers and praise those who do right, which government should do, but it cannot give hope to the hopeless. It cannot show compassion to the broken. Only the gospel does that. And so God can take a Simon Zealot in this room and take that passion for this and turn it to passion for the kingdom and passion for the gospel. That's what he does. You got two other guys, James the Less and Thaddeus, or Judas, the son of James is what he's known as. He's got actually a couple names. And here's what I know about these guys, nothing, because there's nothing hardly in there, which encourages me because here's what I think about these guys. They're just average. They're average. And I know we have a culture that doesn't like average, but let's be real honest. Most of in this room are average. You're just average. And here's what you need to hear. That's okay. I'm not saying do an average job. I'm not saying go to work and just be average. You should do your best job to the glory of God. That's not what I'm saying. You should strive for excellence. But most of us are just normal people. And in the church, we just need normal people who are faithful over the long haul. We, what we love in the church is flash and this and that. Woo, flashiness. Flashiness lasts about this long when it talks about fruitfulness. What we need is long obedience in the same direction. We need Thaddeus, we need James the Less to just be faithful over the long haul and look at the fruit. These guys, just like Peter, foundational in the early church. 
And then you have Judas, which we'll talk about later when he betrays Jesus, who was not really one of the 12. He was one of the 12, but not really a follower, which reminds us that you can have all the facts and you can see all the things, but doesn't mean you're in the kingdom. But here, again, this is what I want us to see. Big picture. God sends them and then by way of application, us. Why? Because we are the heart and feet and the hands and feet of Jesus. And you don't have any excuses because these guys were not saints and they weren't scholars and they weren't religious sages. They were normal dudes with brokenness and averageness and God takes it and he builds his church. And all they were was faithful. Faithful. Faithful using their gifts, faithful using their talents, faithful using their time. And that's all he's looking for us. He's asking you to when you leave this place, just look up and see the fields are ripe. And you don't have to go to Africa to get them. They're right here in midpoint over here. And they're here downtown. And they're at SCAD. And they're at Armstrong, Georgia Southern, whatever it is now. They're at Pooler. They're in Bloomingdale. They're in Richmond Hill. The harvest is ripe. The question is not whether there's a harvest. The question is, is there enough workers? That's the question. And you are the workers. You are. And you don't have to be able to, you know, explain the doctrine of the Trinity like a theological professor. But you do have to say, I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. All you need to know is the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for my sins and rose again. And you put your faith in him, you can experience forgiveness of sins. That's pretty basic. And you can trust God. He's not gonna put you in a situation. We're gonna see this next week. He's gonna, he's gonna give you what you need in that moment to say, to reach. You start playing Colossians 4. This is my challenge to you. You pray Colossians 4 too, that God would open a door for the word this week. You pray for opportunities to be a worker. Pray for it if you have the courage to do it. And you see God move. You see opportunities to be compassionate and to meet needs and to see people as Jesus does. And once you start seeing it, you'll start moving and God will bring these opportunities and you can take them. That's what we want. That's what we mean when we say, go be the church. That's what we talk about when we say, who's your one? Who's your one person you're praying for? Who's your one person you're trying to reach? Who's your one person you're trying to have a spiritual conversation with? Who's your one person? Don't forget that. Because you're plan A. The church is plan A. Go and be the church, because the, the harvest is full, but the laborers, y'all, so few. And we have about 1,200, 1,300 laborers in here on a Sunday morning. I'm praying that we have 1,300 that are going out, because there's only 300,000 people in this town, right? Something like that. You can impact one, two, three. They can impact one, two, three. That's good math. That's what we're called to do. Let me pray. Father, you're the Lord of the harvest. I pray over your congregation right now that you would send out laborers into the harvest. You tell us to pray, I'm praying it. Send them out, Lord, to be your hands, to be your compassion, to be your feet, to love their neighbor, to open their mouths and point to the hope that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. That's what we want. That's what, if we're not gonna do that as a church, we might as well shut the door because we are wasting our time. Let us be sent. Let us be doers, let us get into the fields for they are ripe. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.